day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you had carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of our God. John chapter 20 has four different passages in it, four different vignettes of Jesus uh, appearing in three of those instances and not appearing in one of those instances to his disciples. And all four of these pictures happen after the resurrection, and all four of them are, are seemingly Jesus in one way or another leading people to believe in him, leading people to faith in him. And, and whether it's Peter and John in the first section, or Mary Magdalene, or the disciples, or simply Thomas. Each of these is a picture of how Jesus works in the lives of his people to produce faith in them. And today, as you can see from our handout, this is the first part of a two-part sermon series, we should say. It's not all one sermon, but it's two different parts. And today we're only going to look at those two first vignettes through verse 18. Simon Peter and John, and then Mary Magdalene. The first thing I would like to point out to you is that Jesus provides us with simple mercy. He provides us with simple mercy. We're told at first that Mary goes to the tomb in the dark. This is clearly a picture of her misunderstanding. The, the theme of light and dark has played throughout John's gospel to talk about the knowledge that people have. As Mary goes to the tomb, she is still in the darkness. She still does not understand what she should find at the tomb, which is why when she goes there and she sees that the tomb has not been sealed but it's open, she immediately kind of freaks out. She thinks that something bad has happened, whether it's 
his grave has been robbed, which was not unheard of in the first century, or whether because the tomb was seemingly, at the, at the very minimum, just a convenient place to put his body, maybe somebody has come and moved him. She wants to grieve over the body. She wants to see the body. She wants to know. And the same reason why we have funerals, when people who lose their loved ones, wants, they want to see that body. They want to know that this is my friend, this is my parent, this is my child. She wants to see the body of Jesus she cannot. She clearly does not understand or believe yet. The question then is, do Peter and John? Interestingly, we get no insight into Peter's frame of mind in all of this passage. He is there, and he plays an important role, but we don't understand much about him. We get more of a sense of John. It doesn't seem like John understands truly what is supposed to happen here. John has this odd note, the beloved disciple, this one who Jesus loves is most clearly John the Apostle. He has been downplaying his role in the gospel the entire time. Uh, He is known simply as the one whom Jesus loved. John records both him and Peter running to the grave, and frankly, I find that to be a weird detail. Some have found great importance in this. For some reason, a lot of uh, thinkers throughout the centuries have linked John to the Gentile church and Peter to the church in Jerusalem or the Jewish church, and and they say this is a portrait of the Gentile church outrunning the Jewish church. Um, I'm I'm not always against reading details like that in Scripture. Uh, I think that there is a better explanation for this particular passage, though, and that is, if you you follow with me for a second, that, that John was faster, right? That John simply outran Peter because Peter was an old man and he was slow, he probably had an ankle injury that's been lagging on his, on his ankle for a good three weeks now. That was my, that's my problem. And so he, he wasn't able to get to, to the tomb as fast. John beats him there. But that being said, we still need to think through why John gives us this detail. Because the books of the Bible are not written like Moby Dick, and they're not written like a Jane Austen novel. They're not written like the Count of Monte Cristo, where they can lavish detail and detail and detail to try and paint a picture or set a mood for us. John doesn't have that luxury. Neither does Matthew, Luke, or Mark. They, they've got so much parchment they can use. If you ever wondered why are Matthew and Luke almost the exact same length, the answer is very simple, because that's almost the exact length that a whole parchment would take up. They basically used every inch of it that they could and couldn't add more. John doesn't have room or space or time to write lavish details, so any detail that he includes tends to be important. Some of these details are simply to further along the narrative. So while I think that there's more importance in Jesus being laid in a tomb than simply telling us that he was laid in a tomb, it at the very least sets up the next bit of the narrative, which is Mary running to the tomb. It helps to explain what future events are going to occur. They can also point beyond the text, and we've talked about that quite a bit in the past two sermons. We talked about how a lot of these details point beyond the text to other things. Here, I think that it's important that we see that this detail is more important than simply telling us factual information. It does at least that, but it does more than that. I think that it's important that John gets there first and that Peter gets there second. When John arrives at the tomb, he does not look into the tomb or excuse me, he doesn't go into the tomb. He stoops down, he inspects it, he looks, he can see the clothes lying there, but he does not go into the tomb. We're not actually told why he doesn't go into the tomb. We're not even told that he just kind of gets there and sees, and then Peter rushes past him and enters, but we're told specifically that he doesn't go into the tomb. 
He withholds from going into the tomb for reasons perhaps of ritual cleanliness. He doesn't want to be in the presence of a corpse and defile himself or because he's afraid of what he's going to find in the tomb. We've got no reason why he doesn't. But Peter does. Peter does what Peter does best. He rushes forward and does the first thing that comes to mind. He wants to know what's in the tomb, so he's going to go in the tomb. Peter is back to his old form. Good old Peter. We don't know why Peter enters in. We don't know why John doesn't enter in. But we do know that Peter entering into the tomb for some reason, whatever it was that was holding John back, holds him back no longer. Having seen the clothes lying there, he now enters in and sees the headcloth lying there on the tomb. And that opens us up for this beautiful eighth verse. When the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also goes in, it says he saw and believed. Whatever reason, standing outside the tomb wasn't enough for John to believe. He could see the the tomb empty. He could see the clothes lying there, but that wasn't enough for him to believe. But going inside, seeing the whole tomb empty and seeing the headcloth there, this was enough to cause him to believe. I have no explanation as to why that was the case, but it's clearly the case in the text. John doesn't believe outside the tomb. He goes into the tomb and he does believe, and he goes into the tomb because Peter goes into the tomb. The question is, what does he believe? Verse 9 and verse 8 don't sit together very well or comfortably. It says that he saw and believed, and then there's this explanation. The explanation sounds like he doesn't believe, right? The explanation sounds like it, it, there's, a, there's a mismatch here. He saw and believed, but he didn't understand the scriptures. So we have to make sense of what's going on here. Augustine does a good job of making sense of what's going on here by saying, well, what he actually believed was Mary's testimony. So it wasn't that he came to a fullness of faith here because he didn't understand scriptures, which is what verse 9 is telling us, but rather he actually believed Mary's testimony. It was unbelievable. Who would have taken the body? It was bright and early the day after the Sabbath, the first day of the week. Who possibly would have gone that early to the tomb and removed his body? It was unthinkable. So John doesn't believe her, and he runs and finally finds out that there is no body in the tomb at all, and therefore he believes in her report. There's a handful of problems with that, which we don't need to get into. I don't think it makes sense of history. I don't think it makes sense of syntax. I don't think it makes sense of just about anything. But I really think the major problem is it doesn't make sense of the word believe. In the Gospel of John, the verb believe is used 98 times, and one time, only one time, does it refer to a report that is not believing in Jesus, believing in Jesus' words, or believing in the Father. Belief in the book of John is almost always pointed at belief in God. Almost always. And the only time it's not back in John chapter 9, it is clearly and explicitly laid out. For us to think that what he means is that he believes in the report of Mary here, it seems like John would have to include that he believed in Mary's report or in what Mary told them. That means we have to explain verse 9. I think the explanation is very simple. The four is not explaining the believing. The four is explaining the seeing. Why did John have to see? Why did John have to go in and see? The scriptures are really clear. Scriptures that we have talked about. Scriptures that the, the early church is going to make much of. 
If you go to Psalm 1610, the early church in Acts 2, Peter's going to stand up and say, hey, you guys remember Psalm 16? It says that that the Lord will not abandon his soul to, to Sheol, and he will not let his body see corruption. And he says, David wrote that, but we know that David's body is here. It's rotting away. It's in the tomb. It's seen corruption, but this is Jesus. Jesus did not see corruption. Certainly, as much as Jesus announced his resurrection, you would think that they would have latched on to things like this. Psalm 22, which has played such an important role, both in the beginning of the crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In Psalm 22, 1, in Psalm 22, 18, Jesus, or John and others make note of the fact that criminals cast lot for his clothing. And yet, that particular passage, although he is forsaken, speaks of the one who is forsaken, the one who will be cut off, Nevertheless, proclaiming the name of God to his brothers. Even the famous passage of Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 9 and 10. This suffering servant is crushed. He is cut off from the land of the living and he is placed in a grave. It couldn't be more emphatic that this man was going to die. And yet, and yet Isaiah 53 is clear. He will indeed see his offspring and he will prolong his days. Why didn't John understand from Scripture? I don't know. I I, I don't know. It, It seems like it would have been enough. But Christ is merciful. He knows. He knows. John's not going to get it. He knows that even seeing the clothes on the outside won't allow John to get it. Peter rushes in and he allows John then to come in after him. I imagine that there are a lot of people in here specifically who on a cursory glance through their life are concerned about what they find. They're concerned that they don't do enough. They're concerned that their life doesn't matter. They ask themselves, honestly, what good am I doing to anyone? I don't have the influence over people that I want to have to lead them to the Lord. The only influence I seem to have at times is when I do wrong. People imitate my sin quite a bit. They don't imitate my faith in the Lord. They don't listen to me when I do good and when I speak good to them, but they imitate me when I do bad and when I slip with the tongue. My sin is always getting in the way. Oftentimes people will come to you for advice. You won't know what advice to give to them. You don't know how to lead them to the Lord, what you are to say, how you are to act, what you can do to get through to people the greatness and the goodness of God. You don't know what you're doing for the kingdom. As a matter of fact, you think very much that you are hindering the kingdom as much as you are helping it. Let us remember that if that sounds like anyone, it sounds like me, and I'm guessing for a lot of you it sounds like you. If that sounds like anyone, That sounds like Peter. Peter was just disgraced, embarrassed, and humiliated in front of a girl, in front of a little girl. He was shown to be, quite honestly, a bit of a fraud. This man who is willing to cut the ear off of a a soldier is unwilling to face down simple questions from people around a fire. Who is this man to lead the church, let alone John? John, who is the beloved disciple. John, who was just handed the mother of the Lord and told, take care of her. 
John, who is clearly present at the cross, showing his devotion to the Lord. But I tell you, we ought to see the hand of the Lord in Peter here. It is a simple mercy. It's Peter just being Peter. I'm not calling on you to run out and go do spelunking, okay? You're you're not to imitate Carmen Sandiego, okay? Which is where I, I first understood what spelunking was. You're not to do that. You're simply to press on being who you are. Press on doing the best you can do for the Lord, knowing that you are going to fail, knowing that you are going to sin, and knowing that there is forgiveness for that. But you get up the next day and you work and you do what is best. You do what is right and what is good. You do what God puts in your heart to do. Peter doesn't know what kind of influence he had on John. Peter has no idea that running into that cave, John will follow, and that is the thing that will bring him to faith. You don't know which one of your prayers might lead someone you don't know which one of your actions might bring someone. You don't know which, which kind word is going to, to melt somebody's heart from stone into flesh by the work of the Spirit of God through you. You don't know. So press on, friends. Our Christ is full of simple mercy. He is a great God. And you're right, you are not. You are not great, not a one of you. I am not either. But we do serve a great God. And a great God can do great things through small and limited people. Secondly, Jesus provides us with severe mercy. He provides us with severe mercy. The men go away, Mary stays and weeps. It is not enough. Whatever happens to John seems to happen to John and to John alone. Maybe Peter also saw and believed. We're not told that. But Mary clearly doesn't. Whatever it was that they saw, she looks in, she sees the same thing, and it doesn't have an effect on her. The first time she was there, perhaps it was too dark, she couldn't see into the tomb. The tomb would have been darker than outside, but John already told us it was dark. All she knows is that the stone was rolled away. When they leave, now she can look in. She sees exactly what they see and more. She sees two angels sitting there. It's a very, very odd scene. Almost any other time in Scripture when angels show up, either people are incredibly emboldened to go do amazing things, or people are scared out of their minds. There's almost no middle ground. Mary has a casual conversation with two angels who have mysteriously appeared and then acts like it's perfectly normal and turns around and says, I just want to know where his body is. Like, she's unaffected by this at all. It's an incredibly strange thing. They ask her, what are you seeking? Like, I just want to know where his body is. Why are you weeping, Mary? Now, given that she seems in this passage to be the only eyewitness, John is not telling us that there were angels there. John is telling us, likely, that she knew that they were angels sitting there, one at the head, one at the foot, and still just completely unmoved by it. She is so focused and so locked in her grief on finding the body of the Lord. She turns from them, apparently unmoved by the sight that she has seen. She answers them simply, she bumps into somebody who she thinks is the gardener. She sees Jesus. The text says she doesn't know it's Jesus, which is an interesting facet of the resurrection. Jesus at times appears to people in the resurrection, and they don't know it's him. 
the disciples on the road to Emmaus, walk with him, ride with him for a long time. As not until he leaves, they're like, oh, that was Jesus. Something about his resurrected body is linked back to his actual physical body that he had for those 30 years on earth. There's something of continuity there, but it is so new, it is so immortal now that it is vastly different and he is hidden from people. She doesn't understand who it is. Jesus will, and passages to come, Houdini his way into a, a locked room. It's clear that his body is not a normal body while it is a true physical body. So Mary looks at him, doesn't understand him, understand who it is, and says simply, Sir, if you know where he is, please, please tell me. Jesus says one thing very, very simply, just says her name. Something about him saying her name makes it all click. Something about the way he says it, something about him saying it, we're not told. But it is the word that comes out of his mouth. It is not his physical presence. It's not his face. It's not the way he carries himself. It is simply the speaking of her name that gets her to understand. It is hard not to think back to John chapter 10. Verses 3 and 27, the sheep hear his voice, the good shepherd. He calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He simply calls her by name, and she comes. She exclaims what we would expect, my Lord. We expect almost the, the very thing that Thomas is going to say here in a few verses, my Lord and my God. We expect her to say my Lord, but instead she says something that is far below my Lord. She says something like Rabboni, my teacher. This isn't a bad title. It's not a wrong title, but we don't go around just saying that Jesus is a teacher. It's interesting that John puts, again, that bit in here. It's unlikely that she meant any disrespect by it. It's interesting, though, that she has already called him Lord, and she talks to other people this way, but that Lord is clearly just meaning sir. As a matter of fact, back in verse 15, that is exactly the word that is translated sir there. It's Lord. So she's willing to call the gardener Lord, but she's not going to call Jesus Lord. No, she doesn't mean anything by calling the gardener Lord. She doesn't mean that he is the Lord of all the earth. But it's interesting that she doesn't call Jesus Lord. Then Jesus says something that has frustrated people for the, ever since John has written it down. Do not, he says, cling to me. What are we to make of this? Along with the fact that Jesus says, you can't cling to me because I have not ascended yet. Given what is coming in the next week when he is going to hand or hold his hands out to Simon and say, touch them, it's clear that it's not a problem with touching him before he ascends. Or even after he ascends, touching him is not really the issue. It seems like this is given to her and to her alone. This prohibition is for Mary exclusively. But what does it mean? Why not cling to him if he's ascending? What is the problem with these two things? I think Mary was prone in her grief to want the physical presence of Jesus with her always. She wanted him near her. She has lost him once. She doesn't want to lose him again. Her presence at the tomb suggests this. Her grief, she simply wanted to see her master, and now that she has him back, Jesus knows that she is prone to clinging on to him and never letting him go. I think that all of this points that she wants him only in a human way, 
And I don't mean a sexual way or a sinful way. I, I think that she just wants him to be with her. She wants to be in his presence all the time. And yet Jesus knows if she persists in this, she is going to be doubly pained because he has to go back to the Father. He was never meant to stay on the earth. It would only lead to more heartbreak for her if she were to cling to him now, knowing that she would be ripped away from him again in the future. Rather, she needs to cling to him while he is in heaven. This is the whole point of that word, yet. It says, you are not to cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's not a prohibition that lasts forever. It lasts until he is with the Father. When I'm with the Father, Mary, cling to me, but not before then. I think that there is something lacking in Mary's faith that Jesus here provides. And it's a difficult mercy. It is, as C.S. Lewis says, a severe mercy. It's a piece of mercy with a very sharp cutting edge to it. It it hurts her. We have every reason to believe that it hurts her. She, in her grief and longing, want the wants the physical presence of Jesus to be with her, to be comforted by him. But such comfort is of limited good. It is, frankly, nearsighted, and it's selfish. Mary doesn't understand who he is. This is why she calls him Rabboni and not Lord. This is why she says, my teacher and not my God. It's a good confession, but it is not excellent enough. And Jesus is always meant to be more than that. He is no less than God. And she can only truly cling to Jesus when she finally understands that. And she will only understand that he is fully God if she lets him ascend to the throne where he belongs. Thus the powerful statement in verse 17. I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. Yes, Jesus affirms, we are all now God's children. Again, fulfilling something that happened earlier in John in chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. To all who did receive him, including Mary, he, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Mary is fully her father's. She belongs to him. That is her true everlasting father. They do belong to him, but Jesus is a son of a different type. They don't belong in the same category. Jesus never allows his disciples to think that they belong in the same category. He never talks about our Father. The only time those words ever appear on Jesus' lips is in the Lord's Prayer where he is teaching his disciples how to pray. It is your Lord. You are to say our Lord, but Jesus never says our God, our Father. He is always distinct in the Father's eyes. Jesus is uniquely the Son in two ways. Uniquely, and that Jesus is now proclaimed to be the reigning human king over all of the earth. As Romans 1.4 says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, when Jesus was resurrected, God has put his stamp on the human person Jesus and said, he is indeed my Son. But... The second person of the Trinity is also uniquely the Son of God, generated by God the Father eternally, necessarily, and perfectly. There is only one Son, and there can only be one Son. So while God is our Father and Jesus' Father, He is differently Father to both. 
Mary needs to see and understand that. Jesus is distinct and mighty and high and lifted up. It is because Jesus is the high king of heaven that he must reign in heaven. It is because Jesus is the very nature, image, imprint, being, and substance of God that he must go back to the Father. Friends, you need to see that the Lord works through different means to produce faith in people. What Mary needs is not the same thing that John needs. What you need is not the same thing that your neighbor needs. She sees the very thing that John sees, and she doesn't have the same force of what happens. It doesn't lead her to faith. She needs to see Jesus. He needs to speak to her to help her to understand. We should allow God to work as we will. It's not that we can stop him, but we certainly shouldn't spend our time worrying about it. John needs to see the headcloth. Thomas needs to see the wounds. Mary, Mary needs something else. So friend, be patient with those around you and with the Lord. The resurrection of Jesus is an incredibly difficult thing. It's easy to state, but it's really tough for a lot of people to believe. And what is going to lead one person there versus another is something of a mystery. Some get through there through the prayers of their mother, some through the witness of a neighbor, some through the long-suffering of a wife. Some people need certain things, other people need other things. Be faithful and patient and wait upon the Lord of mercy to work. Jesus, at times, will give us painful experiences, but he does so for our good. It is a severe mercy. She wants to hold him. She wants to hug him. She wants to be in his presence. And he says, you, you can't be, Mary. You can't be. There are times when he will do things to us that seem heartful. He will seem distant. Our pain will blind us to the good that Jesus Christ intends to bring from it. And what's more, I think that at times it so blinds us that we're even going to question why he allows all of it to go on and on and on. But in the end, we must trust that it is better for it. Mary, I'd guess is a little perplexed by all of this. She doesn't see the purpose of this. Even as he tells her this, I don't know that she completely understands. But nevertheless, it is Jesus who means this for her good. One is reminded of Job 2.10. Job sitting there suffering, having lost everything. Now his health is ragged. At its end, his body is falling apart on him. His wife looks at him and says, why don't you curse God and die? Job simply says, shall we receive good from God and not evil? Shall, shall we only be happy when God gives us that which is easy and not when for our own good God gives us that which is difficult? God gives us that which we consider evil. Are we only to be happy with God when he gives us the nice things and to be angry and frustrated when he gives us the hard things. No doubt, Job spoke well. The end of his life was better than the beginning. God has good for you, even in your pain and your frustration. You are not the one who sets the course of history. Your prayers are not the parameters that God uses to set the rails for how the world is going to run. Your pain, your frustration, your confusion, your exhaustion, they are not to drive you to doubt friends, but to recall firmly that your God sits in the heavens. 
and that he does all things well. Jesus' presence with the Father is good for us. It takes him away from us in a sense that he is not physically present with us here. But Jesus' presence with the Father provides hope in darkness. It provides peace in troubled times, and it gives us assurance that even while the world stumbles and falls, even while the world goes to hell, we have a Savior in heaven who cares and who loves, who has not only allowed you to go through painful things, but has experienced those things more than you know on his own for your behalf so that you can trust him. Believing in the resurrection of Jesus is not the easiest of things, but God orchestrates numerous things that have brought you to faith, who have increased your faith. He's done this through people that you know. He's done this through reading the word. He's done this through the spirit illuminating you. He uses the lives of others. He uses your pain and your frustration to drive you back to him, to cling to him, even as he stands in heaven. But let us never forget that Jesus is truly with us. When it says that he is Emmanuel, it didn't mean that he was Emmanuel for 30 years. He took on flesh never to leave that flesh. He took on flesh to always dwell with us, to always be with us. That our God has seen our oppression and our sin. He has seen the misery in which we live in this world. He has seen his people entrapped by their sin and entrapped by those who oppress them and even the powers and the rulers and the principalities. And he did the unthinkable. He took on flesh who did not have flesh. The God who fills the entire universe filled a manger. The God who would one day have to shed those cloths took on swaddling cloths. The one who is ultimately unapproachable and holy and set aside and set apart in all of his ways instead becomes one like us so that we might be brought near to him. He is near to us by the Spirit. And indeed, friends, he is near to us through one another. He works through us even as he worked mysteriously as it was through Peter. Our fellowship with God is manifested in our fellowship with one another. This is the the point of Paul calling us a body of believers, that we are the body of Jesus Christ, that we manifest his presence to one another just as he manifests it to us through the Spirit. So let's celebrate that today, Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's. You don't really need a special day to do that. Let us celebrate that, for he is still near. His death and his resurrection paid our penalty and opened up the gates of heaven. He has provided the Spirit to all who believe that they might know him and know him really and know him truly. And in that, during this, which is one of the darkest days of the year, not just because there's cloud cover, but because it doesn't get light until 9.30 in Michigan in the winter. And yet Jesus provides light and hope for us. Is he your light and is he your hope? Do you trust in him? Do you trust that his death and his resurrection has paid for your sins? Has made you a citizen of a kingdom that is infinitely better than any kingdom that you could possibly belong to here on this earth? And that he breaks into this present evil age to deliver us and to redeem us. Do you trust in that? Do you believe that he is the great and powerful God of old come to be near you and to draw you near to him? 
There is no greater blessing than this, to know Jesus by the work of the Spirit and through him the Father. So let there be joy in all the world, for our Lord has indeed come. Receive your King through faith and trust. Let us pray. Our Father, give us strength to believe in our resurrected Lord fully and truly. Let not our own desires for reality cloud what is really, really true. May your word quicken our hearts to trust you. Loosen our tongues to sing to you. Direct our hearts in prayer to you and strengthen our hands in service to you. Let us know through the aid of your spirit as it is present and working in each of us, your presence even here. And even more than that, we ask for you to bring Jesus to us again. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you will, stand with us and sing our concluding hymn, Joy to the World.